If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. We continue on with our study in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be focusing on one verse tonight, verse 22, but for the sake of context, let's begin by reading verse 19 through verse 25. Again, it's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. This is God's living and active word. We read, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, we come boldly to you in prayer, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and who he is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. As we now turn our attentions to your word and your word preached, we pray that you would bless your church, that you would reveal to us more of Christ's saving merits by causing your goodness to pass before us. Strengthen us and build us up in the most holy faith that we might not give to you any rest until Christ reigns supreme in each and every one of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Speak to us now, O Lord, for your people are listening. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, who is himself the new and living way. Amen. Amen. Because of the great possessions that are found in Christ, Christians have been given the privileged obligation to live out our lives in a specific and certain way. Or as Apostle Paul puts it, and you guys know this verse, he writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, last week we spent our time, if you were here, answering the all-important question of how to go to God. How do we go to God? And the writer of Hebrews, he explains to us with absolute clarity that it is for the children of God alone who can enter into the very presence of the Father, and that solely because of the blood of the Son. That we can go to God by the new and living way which Christ inaugurated for us by His death. And that we can enter into the house of God because we have before us a great high priest who stands and intercedes for us. Jesus, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, 
waiting there, interceding. And if you can recall, we're instructed to go to God, as we've read, not with uncertainty, not with any hesitancy nor timidity, not with fear or doubt, but we're called to go to God, verse 19, boldly, confidently. And that because to enter into the presence of God in and through Christ is not only our blood-bought privilege, but it is, as the children of God, our blood-bought right. It's our right to be there. We can go to God because we belong there. We belong to be there with our Father. And we can go to God because the work of Jesus had been perfectly and satisfactorily accomplished. And it's this very privilege that we have been granted that the writer then proceeds to point out to us three exhortations. It's this privilege which serves as the very grounds, the foundation that gives root and bears fruit to three specific exhortations. Verse 22, we read, to draw near to God. Verse 23, to hold fast the confession. In verse 24, to consider one another for the sake of edification. This to say that genuine and authentic faith in Christ is never to be stagnant. It's never to be dormant or lifeless, but true faith necessarily works itself out, you see. Just as doctrine gives way to duty, it is faith that gives way to faithfulness, faithful living. Or as Puritan Thomas Brooks puts it, he says, the assured and privileged Christian is more motion than notion. More work than word, more life than lip, more hand than tongue. With that being said, we'll be spending the remainder of our time tonight examining the first of the three exhortations found in verse 22. And the way that we'll go about studying this verse on how to draw near to God will be done in two parts, which will also serve as our outline for tonight. First, we'll examine, if you like to jot down notes, the first we'll examine is the attitudes of drawing near. The attitudes of drawing near. And secondly, the terms of drawing near. The terms of drawing near to God. Look down with me to verse 22. We read here, Let us draw near. The Greek word that the writer uses here for draw near, is a word that's closely associated with worship, with worship. If you were to ever read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, you'll find that this word is used in one's approach, approach to God. It's used in the context of drawing near to God to make an offering or to make a sacrifice. For example, we find this very same word used, utilized in Exodus as Israel approaches God at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so for the writer to begin with this specific exhortation, I believe, was not random, but very much intentional. 
To draw near would have gripped these first century Jewish Christians in such a unique way as this word would have held this Old Testament overtone to it. There would have been a certain gravitas, a seriousness that came along with this exhortation. Now to go over some grammar here, I know some of you love grammar, I want you to notice the tense that we find here. Let us draw near. This exhortation is written in the present tense. And if you want to even get more technical here, it's what we would call a present subjunctive cohortative. And this word can be more literally translated as, let us continue to draw near. This to say that drawing near to God is not a one-time thing that you do. You don't just draw near to God to somehow reap up all the benefits found in Christ just for you to draw back into living your own life. In other words, to draw near to God is to be the habit of the believer. It's to be the very lifestyle for the Christian. Not for a season, not temporarily, but day after day after day. Beloved, we must understand that the language of drawing near to God is to be the very goal and aim of our salvation. To draw near to God is to be the heart and the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. The writers already made this utterly clear back in chapter 7 when he wrote, but Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. And he continues to write, He therefore is able to save to the uttermost those who, what? Those who draw near continually to God through Christ. This to say that Jesus came into this world not only to save us, but to make way for us to go to God. And he doesn't just leave us there so that we might somehow muster up our own strength and find some way to the Father on our own behalf, but it's Christ who thoroughly equips and empowers us. And then he commands us to go to the Father. It's Jesus who initiates. It's Jesus who supplies. And it's Jesus who enables this drawing near to the Father. Which is to say this, that the ultimate goal of our salvation is to be brought to God by God. God necessarily draws Himself or draws us to Himself. And again, this is the very essence of what it means to be called a Christian, to be a believer. To habitually draw near to God, not haphazardly, not unwillingly, not begrudgingly, but with the greatest sense of joy. Joy fulfilled. 
The question that naturally follows then is this. What does it then look like, this drawing near to God? What does this mean? What does it really mean? And what does it look like to draw near to the Father? But we find the answer in Hebrews 4.16 as the writer writes, Let us therefore draw near boldly to the throne of grace, so that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Which is to say, and he's referring to here, he's referring to prayer. Prayer. It's by Prayer in which we go to the throne of grace. And it's there at the throne of grace that we then find mercy and grace. In other words, to draw near to God is to commune with God. Now, brothers and sisters, if you ever want to know, and if you ever want to figure out what the condition of your drawing near to God is, the simple question that you must ask your yourself is how is my prayer life if you ever want to know what the condition of your drawing near to god is ask yourself am i communing daily with god and the way you answer that question will determine what that condition is to draw near to god is the christian's great privilege pastor danny prayed this before we began. It's the Christian's great privilege to not only know God, but to live in that constant communion with the Father. And it's in this drawing near to the Father that will then manifest itself in a life that's filled with joy and worship. John Newton puts it like this, He writes, indeed, a person who lives in the exercise of faith and love and who finds by experience that it is good for him to draw near to God will not need to be told how often he must pray any more than how often he must converse with a friend. Those whom we love, we love to be with much. A believer will account those his happiest days when he has most leisure and most liberty of spirit for the exercise of prayer. You must recognize that drawing near to God, it is not some kind of optional exercise that so-called Christians practice here and there. But again... To draw near to God is to be the very pattern of Christian living. We who've been marvelously called to draw near to God, to draw near to God Himself and friends, as we recognize what a great calling this is, we must not waste this privilege. The writer then describes the attitudes of drawing near to God. He first begins with, This in verse 22, we read again, let us draw near with a true heart. We're to draw near to God with a true and sincere and genuine heart. We're to go to the Father with a heart that's undivided. The language that's used here by the writer to describe the heart is one that's 
single in purpose and in intent. A heart that relates to God with adoration, with the right affections and the right priorities. There lies within this an intentional focus of the mind and of the will. Affections that are on fire as it loves to enter into God's presence. It longs to be there. Which is to also say that it's impossible to draw near to God with a dead and sleeping heart. It's the apathetic and lethargic and comatose prone kind of heart that's not true but false and insincere. This is the kind of heart that attempts to draw near to God by going through all the rituals, all the external forms of worship, looking alive on the outside, but is utterly dead and lifeless within. You've seen this. Perhaps you've experienced this yourself. This is the kind of heart that will never be found anywhere near God. But it's the true heart, the heart that's alive and sincere, a heart fixed upon the Savior, that God is well pleased to receive and embrace and welcome in. And so with that being said, beloved, I need to ask, how is it that you came to God this evening? How did you enter into God's presence in worship tonight? Just as it's impossible to enter into God's worship service with a chaotic and a distracted heart, neither can you enter into God's presence with a heart that's preoccupied with the things of this world. It is a sheer impossibility to truly and faithfully draw near to God When your heart's affections and concerns are so divided among all of the things, all of the different cares that this world has to offer you. The second attitude follows here. Again, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In full assurance of faith. The idea of full assurance is not new to us, it's not new for us, as we've seen the writer use the exact same phrase back in Hebrews 6.11. 6.11 where we've read that it's God's desire, His will for all of His children, all of the saints of God to have a full certainty and a wealth of assurance that stems from genuine faith. And so the writer exhorts the believers to draw near to God, not only with true hearts, but also with faith that is fully assured. Now the expression here to draw near with full assurance, it requires our undivided attention here. The 17th century Dutch theologian Hermann Witsius, he writes this, and I've quoted this before. But he writes, full assurance is an expression which occurs more than once. According to to its etymology, the word denotes a carrying with full sail. The metaphor being taken probably from ships when their sails are so filled with favorable gales. 
Thus, it may here signify the vehement inclination of the mind impelled by the Holy Spirit towards an ascent to the truth perceived. In other words, what he's saying is that for the Christian to be full of assurance is to mean that the Christian is to be moving along spiritually. That the believer should be moving along and living faithfully. That the Christian should be mightily used for God. Sadly, assurance in our day has almost become, and perhaps you might agree with me here, assurance in our day has almost become deduced to be some kind of trinket or toy of comfort. Something that you hold on to like a golden ticket and put in your back pocket to make yourself feel better about yourself. But friends, the idea that we find here of what assurance, what biblical assurance is, is not that boring. Biblical assurance is practical. It's to be like a ship to have our sails to be so filled with the gust of faith that it moves us. It directs us and makes great use of us. Practical. Now there are some of you in here, and I've talked to some of you, many of you, that when you think about the doctrine of assurance, when you even hear the exhortation to be full of assurance, the full assurance of faith, that you begin to immediately think to yourselves, I wish I had that. It sounds so good. I wish that was me. I wish I had that kind of assurance, but I don't think I do. I just don't have that. To address you, and to borrow an, an, an illustration here, I want you to imagine with me two Israelite households in Egypt during the Passover. You have in the first house, you have the father there with his children, the firstborn son there alongside the father helping him, helping dad, take the Passover lamb to slay it. And then the fa- father drains the blood and he He takes the blood and he goes out, he dips his brush and he paints the doorposts. And then he goes back in and he sits his family down, his children looking at him. Family worship begins and he begins to instruct his children by saying, because of the blood of the Lamb, God has promised that we will be saved. That the angel of death will pass over this household. And then he goes and he tucks his children into bed. He kisses them goodnight and they all fall fast asleep for the rest of the night. It's the first house. Now in the second house, similarly, the father takes his children. Firstborn, there with his father, he steps up and helps dad take the Passover lamb. Slay it. And then the father drains the blood and he takes the blood outside and he dips his brush, he paints the doorpost with that blood. And he too goes back inside the house and he sits his family down, 
begins family worship and he instructs his family in the very same way. And he says, because of the blood of the Lamb, God has promised that we will be saved. That the angel of death will pass over this household. And again, very much in the same way, after tucking his children into bed and kissing them goodnight, all his children go to sleep. But in this case, ten minutes later, the oldest son, the firstborn, comes out of his room and he walks into his father's room and he says, Dad, I'm scared. I know that the angel of death is coming. I'm the firstborn. I'm your first son. What if I die tonight? And then the father, he reassures his son and he tells him, God has promised. You have nothing to worry about because God is faithful to keep his word. Son, go back to sleep. Go back to bed and know with the greatest of surety, with great assurance that you will be saved. Then 30 minutes later, the son comes back out of the father's room. Dad, I heard you. I, I heard you loud and clear, but I just don't know if I'm going to make it through the night. How can I know for certain that I'm going to be safe? And the father again, he talks to his son. He gently takes him by the hand and he leads him to the front of the house. And he says, you see that blood on that doorpost? Of course you'll make it. God has promised and God will see it through and that He will pass over this household. And all throughout the night, over and over again, the son keeps coming out to the father and asking the same very question, the very same question, am I safe? Am I going to make it through the night? Am I going to make it through the night? Now with this in mind, the question I want to pose to you is the, Is the firstborn in the second house in any way in more danger than the firstborn in the first house who fell fast asleep? Answer is no. No. In fact, both sons are equally secure, not because of their personal confidence, but because of the objective reality of the Passover lamb that God had promised to keep. And this illustration is so much like how we are in this Christian life, is it not? Some of you, you hear the Lord's exhortation for you to draw near. It's your right to draw near. To draw near with full assurance of faith. And you take hold of it and you believe in it because you know that Christ has sufficiently died for you. You know that your sins are forgiven and that you now have full and free access to God and you can immediately go to bed with that full confidence and full assurance. There are some of you like that. Well, there are others of you who believe in the promises of God to be true. That God is indeed faithful. That He will indeed keep His word and see it through. But then you stop there and you begin to wonder to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm safe. Are all my sins really forgiven? What about that one? What about this one? What about the one from this morning? Because if I was really a believer, then I would not have done that. 
What if the blood wasn't properly applied? What if I'm the exception here? You ask ask yourselves these questions and you allow your mind to spiral down into this dark, this dark place of doubt and reluctance. Brothers and sisters, if this describes you based on what we read and what we've studied and what we see here tonight in this pastoral letter, letter of Hebrews, we know that it's God's desire for you to have the same confidence of the first house. That it's God's desire for those who are genuinely saved through the blood of the Son to have a firm and unshakable assurance knowing that He has already saved you. That it's done. So what do you do if you don't feel or have this feeling of assurance? And first of all, You need to begin with what you know. The writer of Hebrews simply tells us this truth, that it's God's desire for you to have full assurance. That's a promise. Because assurance isn't dependent upon how you feel, but it always rests in the person and work of Jesus. Friends, you must begin there at the foot of Calvary where the work of salvation was made perfect and complete. And you must insist that the reality of the gospel is not only true, but that it's true for you. And you preach that gospel message, that powerful gospel message to yourself daily, not because you don't know it or because you'll somehow forget it, but simply because you desperately need it. This does also say that your experience of your assurance isn't even dependent upon how rotten you feel or how rotten you find yourself to feel. Because I've met some people who try to dig themselves so deep into their own misery and guilt, believing that it's there in that dark and painful place that they'll find the treasures of assurance. But you must know it's It's never been there. It's not there. You can find it. You can look for it as much as you want, but it's not there. But rather, the treasures of assurance, it's found not in a subjective feeling of rottenness, but it's found in a person. It's found in a person. Christ Jesus, and it's a Him that you must look to. It needs to be said as well that more often than not, if not always, the primary reason for why the people of God suffer so much from the lack of assurance is because of their own sin, their own guilt, their own transgression. And what I mean by this and what I want to say is far too often People desire and long after the assurance of salvation while neglecting their need for grace and holiness. It's possible. You can want assurance but not want Christ. It's possible. 
Thomas Brooks, he writes, It may be your request for assurance have been full of life and spirits. When your requests for grace and holiness, for communion with God and conformity to God, have been lifeless and spiritless. And he writes this. If so, if this describes you, no wonder that assurance is denied you. Assurance makes most for your comfort, but holiness makes most for God's honor. Man's holiness is now his greatest happiness, and in heaven man's greatest happiness will be his perfect holiness. We must never separate the subjective experience of having that full assurance apart from the full assurance of faith that's based upon the objective worship of Christ. The two must go hand in hand. Assurance that's true will never be found and they'll never be had apart from Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if this describes you, if you're unable to draw near to God because of your lack of assurance, Ask yourselves, what more could he have done for me that has not been done already? And I believe that you know the answer to that very question. Absolutely nothing. Not one more drop of blood, not one more nail, not one more lash upon his back or thorn upon his brow could have done anything more for you or to you other than what Christ has already accomplished for you. We must know that because of Jesus' blood, because he has inaugurated a new and living way, and because he stands as our great high priest, God then exhorts us to draw near to that with a true and sincere heart, and with faith that is fully assured, not in ourselves, but in the Son. Now transitioning now from the attitudes of drawing near to our second point, the terms of drawing near, we continue to read in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we find here in the second half of this verse, we find here the causes, the terms for why we can draw near to God. And the reason for why the writer shifts from the attitude of drawing near to God to the terms of drawing near to God is because pastorally, remember he's a pastor writing to his congregation here, pastorally he wants to saturate the believers' minds with truth with doctrine. He wants to embolden his readers, to the believers, to not only go to God, but to remain there with him and to stay there with him in close proximity. He's pastorally and strategically, he's loading up the believers with truth on the front end in verses 19 and 25, we studied last week, to have boldness and confidence in the blood of Jesus because he's the great high priest, while simultaneously loading them up on the back end that you have had your consciences cleansed and your bodies washed. And it's within this doctrinal, if I can put it this way, this doctrinal sandwich that then gives us the very reasons for why we can draw near to the Father in the first place. If we were to take a closer look here in the second half, 
The first reason why we can draw near to God is because He sprinkled our hearts from an evil conscience. Now, this isn't the first time that we've seen that word sprinkle. The writer, if you can recall, he, used this, he uses this word back in chapter 9 to refer to Exodus 24 and the whole Old Testament ceremony and sacrificial system. And it's the sprinkling of the blood that communicates the idea of cleansing, of purification. And so the idea here is that because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of His blood which He offered on His own accord, there has been an inward cleansing that's taken place. An inward cleansing that's delivered us from an evil conscience. Cleansing that's sufficiently delivered us from a guilty and burden and a sin weighed down conscience. And so the first reason for why we can boldly draw near to God is because through the sacrifice of Christ, we've not only been justified and sanctified and declared righteous in the sight of God, but we've been perfectly cleansed inwardly in the sense that we can now go to God and draw near to God. Now notice here that this inward cleansing that we read of here doesn't just free us from the weight of guilt, but it cleanses us in, in such a way that it allows us to think the thoughts of God. It's the sprinkled heart that directly results in the cleansed conscience. It's the regenerate heart that's directly correlated to the renewed mind. The sprinkled heart to the conscience clear mind. It's connected here. Head and heart. Furthermore, not only are we cleansed inwardly, but we continue to read, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and he writes, our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I've tried to uh, figure out what this means, and I've read quite a bit of commentaries that state that the washing with the pure water that's used here is solely used figuratively. It's figurative language. That the writer's using this phrase to refer to the Ceremonial cleansing of the priests before they made an offering to God. While I would agree with them to a certain degree, I don't think that this fully communicates what the writer is actually trying to say here. Now I'm going to suggest to you that the second part of this term, the results for why we can draw near to God, is actually referring to the ordinance of baptism. The first part being that our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience, conscience inwardly. I believe that the washing of our bodies with pure water is referring to that outward sign of that inward cleansing, which is water baptism. And I'm not just saying this because we're Baptists. And again, although many have taken the figurative language position, there are others who make the argument why it should be understood as baptism, such as F.F. F. Bruce, who I adore and love, and he writes this, the present reality which the writer has in mind is most probably Christian baptism, consisting, of course, not merely in the outward application of the water, but in the outward application of water 
as the visible sign of the inward and spiritual cleansing wrought out by God in those who come to Him through Christ. In other words, what he's trying to say here is that when the writer says that our bodies have been washed with clean water, he's referring to the reality of that inward cleansing that's been outwardly demonstrated through the waters of baptism. Now, you might have heard me or one of the pastors here say, look back to your baptism. Or I've even heard some people say, make use of your baptism. And the reason for why we say this is not because we believe that baptism has some sort of inherent power to save you or cleanse you from sin in any way, but because your baptism demonstrates publicly the cleansing and inner renewal that took place through the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only are we publicly professing our faith in and through our baptism, but we're following that divine ordinance given to us by Jesus, whereby we are appealing to God's pledge to us that we have indeed been cleansed, that we've been truly washed by the blood of the Lamb. And so to make sense of or to make use of, to recall your baptism is to serve as the reminder that you have truly received from God the pledge that you have been cleansed through the blood of the Son. So what is the writer trying to say here in verse 22? You can summarize it. But the writer is saying this. He's saying, draw near to God. Draw near and commune with the Father with a true and sincere heart, with full objective assurance. Know that you can draw near to Him because, because He's cleansed your conscience. Because you know that Christ has perfectly and effectively died for your sins and your baptism stands there. That you've not only confessed your faith in Christ, but you've received God's pledge to you that you have been cleansed. In other words, draw near to God because the work of Christ has thoroughly and effectively cleansed you through and through, both inwardly to outward, inside out. Now in closing, if I can briefly address the unbelievers who are with us here tonight. Friends, you must know that to draw near to God and to have a sincere heart that's filled with this thing called assurance, this is not for you to have. We know this because we read in verse 22 that this great privilege is solely for those who are in and of faith. But unbelievers, you must know that this gospel promise of the cleansing of sin and the assurance of eternal security, salvation through the Son, you must know that it is offered you tonight. You must recognize that it was God incarnate who condescended to partake in flesh and blood to draw close to us that we might draw close to Him. And He calls you to not only recognize your sin, to not only recognize your helpless and hopeless state, but He calls you to look to Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you will find that it's then only when you look by faith to Christ as your Savior that you will find this supernatural drawing to be drawn to the Lord.
And church, we must never forget that the life that we've been given and called to live in Christ is one of closeness to God. Confidence and assurance found in the person and work of Jesus. And it's because of him that we can boldly enter into the presence of God. It's because of him that we can draw near and commune with the Father. Brothers and sisters, as the family of God, this is not only your right. You have a right to do that. But it's your privileged obligation. It's a duty that's to be saturated with joy. And this isn't a confidence that's presumptuous, but this is in every way a confidence that humbly feasts upon the benefits won for us by Christ. Last week after preaching how we as Christians have the bold and blood-bought right to enter into the presence of God, a brother, uh, he approached me afterwards and he rightfully said this to me. He said, it's a strange thing to know that to not go to God and to think that we somehow don't belong there with him after all that Christ has done for us isn't a sign of humility but pride. And he's right. For Christians to think to themselves that they, that they don't belong, that they can't draw near and take advantage of this privilege to draw near to their Father in heaven, that's not humility. That's not a sign of humility. But that kind of thinking is simply the failure to recognize the perfect work of Jesus Christ. It undermines what the Son of God had accomplished to save sinners. And that kind of thinking is to make your sins greater than the Savior. We must recognize that as God exhorts us through His Word to draw near to Him and to commune with Him, we must obediently do it. It's a must. We must go to Him in that humble confidence. A kind of confidence that looks not to the self, but to look that looks to Christ. The kind of confidence that not only honors the Father and exalts the Son, but one that produces in every station in our lives a holy joy. A holy joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we are far too often short-sighted, that rather than drawing near to you with the true heart that's fully assured by faith, we find ourselves drawing ourselves away from you with hearts distracted with the cares of this world. Assist us to recognize the foolishness of wanting heaven at the expense of faithfulness. Assist us to recognize the foolishness of desiring assurance to the, ne to the neglect of your holiness. And as we go forth from this place of worship, keep us to be mindful of our natural state. That we would walk, as Paul writes, circumspectly, wisely, not as fools, while simultaneously remembering our heavenly title that has been won for us in Christ Jesus. We ask that you would draw near to us as we day by day strive to draw near to you. We pray these things in the name of the one who is the Lamb of God and the one whose blood has cleansed us forever. Amen.